Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Wiley Cash. He is the author of A Land More Kind Than Home, This Dark Road to Mercy, and The Last Ballad. He is a champion for independent bookstores, for his university, for his publisher, for his friends, and is just an all-around great guy. His new book is When Ghosts Come Home, which is published by our friends at William Morrow. Wiley, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Jason, and thanks for saying so many nice things about me before we start. Absolutely. It's an honor to have you here, Wiley. And first things first, uh, I mentioned that you are a champion of independent bookstores because we are a podcast that is presented by an independent bookstore. Can you, Wiley Cash, please tell me why you consider independent bookstores to be important? Well, well, one of them is, well, they're both really for selfish reasons. Uh, independent bookstores pay taxes in my community. That benefits me. Uh, independent bookstores give me a place to go where uh, they know my reading tastes. Uh, there's almost no bookstore, independent bookstore, especially in North Carolina, where I can go in that I don't know a handful of booksellers who can put good books in my hand because they know what I like. And then finally, and probably ultimately most selfishly, independent bookstores have really embraced my career. You know, I don't think I would have a career if it weren't for independent bookstores. So as much as my um, my support of stores seems altruistic, it's really so very selfish. I need them because I need to shop. I need to find new books and uh, I need them to share mine with readers. They've they've meant the world to me. Well, we appreciate it, Wiley, regardless of your motivations. Um, <laughs> now let's jump into your excellent new novel, When Ghosts Come Home, which is sure to be one of the best books of 2021. You state in your email newsletter that you believe this book to be your best work. What is it like for published books into your career, some of these books being bestsellers? What is it like at this point in your career to produce a work that you the author, considered to be your best? And how do you arrive at such a judgment of your own work? You know, I think that you don't really know what a book is going to be like until you finish it. When I'm working on a book, I started working on When Ghosts Come Home as a short story way back in maybe 2014. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of allowed it to evolve into a novel after uh, I finished the manuscript for The Last Ballad, which was my 2017 novel. And when you're writing a book, you're not really aware of its quality as a cohesive object or as a cohesive experience. You might be aware of it on a scene-by-scene -scene basis, or you might feel really strong about some characters, or you might feel really strong about a thematic through line. But it's not really until you get to the end of the book and you can discuss the totality of it that you reflect on thinking, you know what, this this really works, or this is, this, this is stronger than I realized the, the parts of it were. The sum of it is stronger than, the, than, the, than I realized the parts of it were. And that's kind of what this book did. It really snuck up on me. You know, I, I was really head down revising a lot of it during the pandemic. And so my world was very small and very narrow. And even though it was under contract, when I'm writing a book, I don't really have any thoughts of it ever coming out and talking to to someone like you or seeing it on the shelf at a store like Quail Ridge or wherever else. I'm just kind of doing this very private thing. And then when this book was done, 
just thinking back over the whole process and then having this finished product, I thought, you know, this might be my best book. And I think it's because, you know, you're always learning or I'm always learning when I write. And I feel like when ghosts come home is a really, you know, I feel, I feel like my first two novels were great, fastly plotted novels. I think there was some character resonance there, but they were pretty tightly plotted, tightly wound novels that take place over a couple of days. And then last ballad was this kind of expansive character study of, of so many different people. And when ghosts come home really combines both of those, I feel like I've got a tightly packed plot. I've got, I've actually got a real mystery in this book, something I've never done before, mm -hmm. but I think it's full of some really resonant characters that will feel real and vital to the reader. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Wiley. And this book, when ghosts come home starts on October 30th, the day before Halloween in 1984, is this story meant to be a Halloween story or more properly a ghost story? I think in a lot of ways it is. I, you know, when I was writing the book, I was more concerned about the election, the 1984 election, because our, our main character, the sheriff who's awakened by the roar of this low flying aircraft. And he goes out to the municipal airport off the coast of North Carolina to discover this abandoned aircraft and uh, the body of a local dead man. This, this sheriff is facing a tough reelection battle. Um, coming in November. And so I mostly centered the story around um, that election and, and, and kind of the days leading up to the election. And then once I kind of looked at the calendar, because I'm always looking at calendars, I make mock-up calendars and trying to keep track of the unities of time and all this stuff. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's also near Halloween. And I knew the novel was going to have this thematic element of ghostly hauntings, not spiritual ghosts, but the ghost of history, the ghost of culture, the ghost of family, the ghost of memory. And then when I saw that the novel was going to be set around Halloween, I thought, gosh, how appropriate. So there's some Halloween scenes thrown in. There's some pumpkins on porches. There's kind of that heavy kind of dark smothering that the, uh, the fall season brings to our perceptions. But so it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a ghost Halloween novel, both in, uh, in reality and, and perhaps thematically. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Wiley. This is a good time to mention the Crooks Corner Book Prize. Have you heard about the Crooks Corner Book Prize, what Pulitzer Prize winner Charles Fraser calls the coolest book prize in the country? Awarded annually for the best debut novel set in the American South, the $5,000 prize is intended to encourage emerging writers, whether published by established publishing houses, small independent publishers, or self-published authors. This year's winner will be chosen by best-selling novelist and poet Ron Rash and will be announced in January 2022. For more information, visit www.crookscornerbookprize.com. Wiley, back to your book. The protagonist of this story, Winston Barnes, is a sheriff in a small North Carolina town. I want to ask you to compare and contrast two fictions. What is the difference between the fiction of a sheriff in a small North Carolina town that you are presenting here and when ghosts come home and the fiction of a sheriff in a small North Carolina town in the Andy Griffith show? And how do these two fictions compare with reality? Well, <clears throat> that's a great question. You know, Andy, Andy Griffith is probably our most beloved uh, North Carolina sheriff, despite my best efforts to dethrone him with a couple of novels. 
But, you know, Andy Griffith, uh, I don't even think Andy Griffith wore a sidearm. Um, you know, there was there was less crime in Mayberry and there were more um, social custom misunderstandings that Andy Griffith had to iron out or that the sheriff had to iron out. In small rural spaces, um, there is oftentimes, especially here in eastern North Carolina in the 1980s and then in western North Carolina, where my first novel is set in the 1980s, these are small, relatively... Now, I don't want to say myopic, but they're endlessly provincial places. Um, Madison County, North Carolina, with my first novel, A Land More Kind Than Home, and then Brunswick County, North Carolina, with my most recent novel, When Ghosts Come Home. Um, these are provincial places where there is a rule of custom. There is a class based. There are racial and social hierarchies at play. And there are people who will do almost anything to cling to power. And um, I like enjoying these spaces, uh, exploring these spaces, uh, especially in terms of their rural structures, um, their customs, their dynamics. And I, I find them really to be emblematic of so much about the American experience that we either overlook or that we forget. And we only remember it every four years during presidential elections when it surprises us in one way or another, because we spend so little time really investigating its history, its contemporary moment, and the people who inhabit them. And so I think that Andy Griffith kind of longs for the wistful days of yore, you know, those, those 1950s and 60s. Um, and then my contemporary novels show that, you know, those wistful days of yore are not always what they are made out to be in these rural spaces. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Wiley. Um, when I was coming up through the University of South Carolina as an undergrad uh, doing some creative writing. One of the issues a lot of writers were struggling with was how to, and even whether or not to, incorporate current technology, specifically internet technology, into fiction. I'm wondering if setting a novel in 1984 is sort of a refreshing decision as a writer because you can do away with all of that. And also, uh, if setting a novel in 1984 presents different sorts of issues to grapple with. Yeah, it is, it is kind of neat to write about not having internet, cell phones, immediate access to information and communication, but everything comes with its own challenges because then you have to think about, well, how do characters share information? Are they gonna read it in the newspaper? Well, what's the, what's the print deadline for news and dissemination? And so I think any era offers its benefits and its challenges. But it was really important to me to set this novel in the 1980s because that historical cultural moment is so resonant of the time in which I was writing the novel. You know, the 1980s we have, we're facing election, uh, Reagan's re-election. 60% of the popular vote goes to Reagan. He wins 49 states. Um, it's morning in America. We are a city on a hill. But then beneath those facades, we have the AIDS epidemic. We've got so much racial violence. We've got the crack epidemic. We've got Rust Belt towns, uh, you know, bankrupting, going bankrupt and people struggling and jobs leaving. And so that felt very much like, you know, the pandemic. It felt very much like the summer of George Floyd, the protest of George Floyd's murder. It felt very much like a lot of uh, the, the, the issues that drove the election of Donald Trump in 2016 were, 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 were reanimations of a lot of the issues that were, that were alive in 1984. 
And so writing this book, it, it let me go back and revisit the technological limitations, you know, people using rotary phones with cords on them. And then, but also some of those political and cultural implications that have not gone the way of the rotary phone. Absolutely. Thank you, Wiley. And we're going to build a little bit off of your answer in a moment. But first, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Wiley Cash. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Wiley Cash, author of When Ghosts Come Home, which is published by our friends at William Morrow. Wiley, what are your feelings about the Confederate flag? Oh, Lord. I think the Confederate flag is a relic of a traitorous nation that rose up against my home country, the United States of America. Um, those are just, that's, that's my take on it. I think it is, it is a divisive symbol of treachery and human bondage. Yeah, and I ask this, of course, because the character uh, Fry, who is running against Winston Barnes in an upcoming election for sure, uh, flies a Confederate flag, sometimes driving around and harassing African-Americans in this town where he lives. Was this sort of blatant racist baiting politics inspired by the recent political climate in America um, when you were writing about it? And how far, Wiley, does this type of politics go back? I mean, this type of politics, you know, the things that Bradley Fry does in the novel, he's the sheriff's challenger. Mm-hmm. He is taking advantage of some of the uh, racial underpinnings of this, this, this appearance of this mysterious airplane and rumors of drugs and all of these nationalist and, and white supremacist sympathies that he can play on to get attention. And, you know, he and his friends, he and his buddies go on a night ride in the black community and it is reminiscent of night rides that the Ku Klux Klan would go on to intimidate uh, property owners, uh, people who stood up for themselves, sharecroppers, uh, tenant farmers uh, in the South uh, in the years uh, during Reconstruction and before the rise of, of the Jim Crow legal system. And so these go back a very long way. And, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a hope and a tendency uh, to say, well, this is this is behind us. This is distant history. And you know, when I while I was working on this novel, like in fact, working on these scenes, there was a a, a black high school student. I think he might have been a senior or a junior at a high school just north of Wilmington, who had a couple of off-duty police officers uh, and some local folks, all men, all white men, show up at his mo- mother's door. Uh, late at night with guns asking him to come outside because they were looking for a girl and he they had reason to believe that he knew where she was and they were trying to intimidate him and 
they had the wrong house. It was the wrong guy. He had no idea what they were talking about. And none of those people ever faced any disciplinary action. And so this stuff still happens. We still have white men showing up with guns on the doorsteps of un, unassuming and unwitting black uh, citizens. It's, it's not something that's out of our nation's history. Right. Um, and I have to tell a personal story really quickly. I, I told you I was an undergrad at the University of South Carolina, where when I was there, they were still flying the Confederate flag over the, um, the Capitol building. Um, and later they moved it to the state house grounds, which was supposed to be some sort of compromise. But, um, you know, Columbia is about as far right as you can get uh, on the political spectrum. Uh, and then I moved to San Francisco, which was about as far left as you could be on the political spectrum. Um, and then after a couple of years, I flew back to Columbia to visit one of my uh, old professors. And then just seeing that um, Confederate flag on a government building after having been, you know, on the complete opposite political extreme I could have been. And it was shocking. You know, it's so strange, like how you're, you know, the Confederate flag is wrong. You see it in the South all the time. Uh, But then when you're removed from it, you know, it really does become analogous to like a Nazi flag or something like that. Or, you know, I know you've got, uh, you know, we're talking about having kids of similar ages, but having Mm -hmm. to explain that to your kids, like what does that flag mean? What, What is that? And having to tell them. Right. You know, they might have their own reasons for flying it, but that's where that flag came from. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Wiley. Um, We've talked a lot about Winston Barnes. I would like to ask you to take a moment to introduce our listeners to the character Colleen. Who is Colleen and what has happened to her? So Colleen is Winston's 25-year-old daughter. She shows up the morning after this aircraft has been discovered at the local airfield. And Colleen is fleeing a tragedy in her life back in Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. She is fleeing a marriage that she feels kind of a a young marriage that she feels on the outside of. And she's hurting in ways that she can't quite um, put to words. And she comes home to make sense of her life. She comes home to lick her wounds. But as soon as she comes home, she finds herself, as many of us do, stuck in the kind of uh, uh, non in, never ending routine of life and home life and domesticity. And she, she returns home and once again becomes a pouty teenager who thinks she knows better than her parents and has all of the answers and, and kind of chafes against their provincialism or their, uh, their lack of worldliness. But what that causes her to do, what being thrust into the midst of this investigation and all of its attendance pit, attendant pitfalls with race and class and gender and, um, region and all of these things, Colleen really has to look and take a hard look at her parents and the way in which she was raised. And then she also has to look to some degree at her own complicity and her history of, of racial and racist sympathies and, and, um, and, and all of those things. And so as much as she wants to indict her parents as being dinosaurs, she, she's really forced to come to terms with some of the, uh, ideas that she has that she's not necessarily living her values. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Wiley. Um, This next question is both one that is related to your book and not related to your book. And this type of detail is why I love that we have so many fantastic authors in North Carolina, because names and faces and locations can jump out at you and remind you of things uh, that you may know about, but that you have forgotten. My question, Wiley, 
is what do you know about the pterodactyl club? Um, not a whole lot, to be honest. The pterodactyl club, I believe it was gone. I know my sister went there. I have a sister who's eight years older than me, and she was actually texting me this morning. She's rereading the book about all the ways in which this novel reminds her of the 80s. I think she graduated high school in 1988. Mm -hmm. So she spent some time at the pterodactyl club. But, you know, her being that much older than me, in many ways, she felt kind of unknowable when I was young. I mean, she, mm -hmm. she finished high school when I was 10. Mm -hmm. And that, un that unknowability goes into the, to the mystery of some of these characters. And I, I definitely got that from her. Yeah, that's great. I, I, Remember the Pterodactyl Club? I believe it was owned by the same guy that owned the Milestone Club, even though I may be getting that confused with something else. But um, I think it was around until uh, almost the year 2000, sometime around then. Um, anyhow, that was a fun surprise to see that in your book. <laughs> um, finally, Wiley, I've been talking lately about the economy of writing and how some writers can do so much with such a small amount of words. The classic example being in Lolita when Nabokov describes a death by writing picnic, comma, lightning. Um, about two thirds of the way into your book, a character, Vicky, who works for Sheriff Barnes, says the following sentence. No law against driving around, Sheriff, in uh, quote. And with this one simple sentence, you learn everything there is to know about this character, about the police department, and about the town. Tell us what is going on here, Wiley, and how you arrived at this moment where one sentence turned this story on its head. Um, th that's a scene where the sheriff has just become aware of these night rides that are happening in the Black community. And he has also he has also just been made aware that there have been numerous complaints about these night rides. And then he's also made aware that none of these complaints have been shared with him. And he goes and he steps in to see his secretary and he says, why haven't you given me these messages? Mm -hmm. And she says, because there's no law against driving around. And that shorthand for saying, I support what is happening in the black community. I support your challenger. I'm going to vote against you. I'm going to vote for this guy. And you may have known me for close to two decades, but you have never fully understood the depths of my racism and the ways in which it influences my life um, in a manner that I have kept hidden from you. And, um, you know, I'm going to tell tales out of school. I, got a re I have an upcoming review in the New York Times where that moment is cited as being kind of unbelievable. It was a great review until that moment when the reviewer mentions that that moment was completely unbelievable, that there's no way a sheriff could work alongside somebody for a decade and a half, two decades, and not know their cultural standings, their cultural opinions. And my response is, well, then I'm assuming this reviewer predicted the, the win of, of Donald Trump in 2016. And I'm assuming this reviewer predicted that all of her friends and family and acquaintances she's known for years would not surprise her by supporting him. I was surprised. Um, most everybody I know was surprised. And a lot of us have ended friendships and complicated familiar relationships because of the decisions they made around that election. And, and going further, maybe even some things that came out of George Floyd or Black Lives Matter or vaccines or masks. You know, we're, we, in this country, we are continually surprised by the hidden racial and cultural and historical attitudes of those closest to us. 
And that's what I was trying to reveal in that scene. And um, I knew when I began the novel that I was writing toward an emotional moment just like that when I didn't know where it was going to come in, but I knew that it was going to come in. Thank you, Wally. And let me um, disagree uh, wholeheartedly with that uh, reviewer from the New York Times. In, in my opinion, um, you know, I, I do one of these podcasts every week. And um, so I read a lot of books. And to me, that was the best scene I've read all year. Um, and also the New York Times always like writes one really good and one really weird review of every book. because I think <laughs> they just don't want history to be able to prove them wrong. Um, but uh you know, I would also ask that reviewer, like, you know, maybe in the year 2021, when you can see uh, what everyone is thinking all of the time on, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. I could maybe fall in line with that argument. But in the South in 1984, I'm assuming that it was very easy to work alongside sure. someone and have no idea who they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thank you very much Wiley that was a fantastic scene this is a fantastic book thank you for writing it uh, it is most definitely one of the best books of the year listeners I have been speaking with Wiley Cash author of When Ghosts Come Home which is published by our friends at William Morrow Wiley thank you for joining me thank you so much Jason it's great to see you man Once again, I would like to thank Wiley Cash for joining me. Signed copies of When Ghosts Come Home can be purchased from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping while supplies last. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.